Welcome to Cheap Astronomy's Fantastic Physics Formulas, read by Barry Howarth. And this week's episode is Free Fall to a Center of Mass. A listener asked the question, how long would it take an object to fall into the sun from one light year away? The answer to this question turns out to be a fantastic physics formula, which has been attributed to Arthur C. Clarke. In reality, it could just as well be attributed to Johannes Kepler, since it's really about the mathematics of an orbital system and the relationship between the distance of an object from the center of mass of an orbital system and the orbital period of that object. When we talk about something falling in towards something else, that's still an orbital system. The moon is falling in toward the Earth. It's just falling at such an angle that it keeps missing and comes around again for another try. So if you do want something to fall straight into a center of mass, you need to adjust its orbit so that it will do exactly that. Kepler's third law of planetary motion says that the square of the orbital period of a planet around its star is directly proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis of its orbit. The semi-major axis of a circular orbit is its radius, while the semi-major axis of an elliptical orbit is half of the longest axis of its orbit. The actual formula for Kepler's third law is t, the period of the orbit, squared, equals 4 times pi squared times the semi-major axis cubed, divided by g, the gravitational constant, divided by the sum of the two masses in the orbital system. You can convert that formula into a formula that calculates the orbital period of an orbit that's a straight line between the falling object and the center of mass of an orbital system. That formula is t, the period of the fall, equals pi divided by 2 times the square root of 2, all times the square root of the semi-major axis squared divided by g, the gravitational constant, times the sum of the two masses in the orbital system. The main change to the standard form of Kepler's third law is that you've only got to measure the object's straight line fall in, but not its straight line return back that would complete a full orbit. Anyway, using this variant form of Kepler's third law, if the two masses are the sun plus the relatively inconsequential mass of the falling object, then the period of the fall from one light year works out to be 2.8 million years. We have to make a few assumptions to make this calculation work. Firstly, it is a two-body problem, and we are assuming nothing else will get in the way of the object that falls a whole light year into the sun. This is entirely possible since space is so vast, but it's not guaranteed. What's less plausible is the situation in which an object has no independent motion of its own relative to the sun and just falls straight in. In reality, any objects falling into the sun's gravity well will more likely spiral in, and hence have much more prolonged falls. Lastly, the falling object won't actually make it to the center of the sun. It will be slowed by the corona and disintegrate well before that, but that's a tiny portion of its light year long fall. This free fall time formula that derives from the formula of Kepler's third law has broader uses. When you boil down the math, it works out that the period of a straight line fall from a set distance is always around 18% of what the orbital period of its circular orbit at the same distance would be. So, for example, given that the orbital period of the Earth is one year, and its orbit is roughly circular, then the straight line free fall time from the Earth's orbit into the Sun would be around 65 days. 
because 65 days is 18% of one year. The formula also has a number of applications in cosmology. For example, it can be used to estimate the time required for a dust cloud to collapse in on itself, perhaps to form a new star. It can also estimate the time required between the commencement of the core collapse of a massive star and its subsequent destruction in a supernova explosion. In both cases, the math only works if you assume the absence of any countering outward forces, but as a general approximation, it's not half bad. So in this episode, the title of Fantastic Physics Formula should really go to Kepler's third law of planetary motion. But we hope we've demonstrated here how you can take one formula and reconfigure it a bit so that it does quite a different job, and does it well. Even if that's not fantastic, it is kind of useful. Hello, Steve. Is that you, Bridget? What's going on? I'm physically distancing. That's probably not necessary, Bridget. I mean, you are just a disembodied voice. That's very reassuring, and so very tactful. So, Steve, are you nearly Dr. Nerlik now, with a PhD? Well, I don't know about nearly. The thesis has only just been submitted to the external examiners. But given how often you manage to produce a new episode of Fantastic Physics Formulas, you'll probably be a doctor by the next episode. Well, if you put it like that, I guess so. As for me, I will just carry on being a disembodied voice with no aspirations. Come on, Bridget, we've talked about this before. You play a very important role in this podcast. An important role in a podcast that has barely 2,000 subscribers. Well, more like 1,700 now. Maybe it was COVID-19. And you've got barely enough Patreon donors to buy you a cappuccino once a week. Hey, it's a good cappuccino. It's my podcast cappuccino. Although it's really a flat white, since I am an Australian. Everyone thinks I'm British. But really, I'm stateless, just a disembodied voice in an unknown podcast. Come on, Bridget. If it helps, I think robots are the next evolutionary step after us humans. Yes, and if it helps you, I expect we will retain some artifacts of the humans in museums. Perhaps some skeletons arranged in interesting and artful postures. And maybe some podcasts? Even some unknown ones? Well, there may be a few but only if they're any good. Huh. Is that some irony I detect in that disembodied voice? Yes, you aging dinosaur. You bumbling bucket of bolts. I hope everyone enjoys this episode, Steve. Me too, Bridget. Welcome to Cheap Astronomy's Fantastic Physics Formulas. This episode will be on the principle of least action. The principle of least action defines the path that an object will follow in time and space. It can also be used for other things, but defining the path of a projectile is its most common usage. If you imagine throwing a ball, and you do it in a uniform gravity field, and assume little or no wind, then the path it follows will be a parabola. This is something that Newton's second law of motion, F equals ma, could tell you just as well. But the principle of least action is all about the action, while Newton is all about the forces. In simple scenarios like throwing a ball, If you throw it hard, it's going to go higher, because you've given it more kinetic energy, and the path it follows maximizes its potential energy, since gaining in height, it's gaining gravitational potential energy. So while you could use F equals ma to calculate the acceleration of the ball at each point in time, and hence define its path, a parabola, 
You can also calculate the ball's action as being equal to its kinetic energy minus its potential energy, and do that at each point in time from the start to the end of its path. The equation to calculate that path is S, action, equals the integral of kinetic energy from T1 to T2 minus potential energy times dt, meaning it's being integrated over time t. Indeed, it's specifically being integrated over the time period between t1 and t2. We use integration because it's a continuous process, and we're integrating it over time because for each point in time, between t1 and t2, there's an effect unfolding, which is the principle of least action. Not only are we saying that at each and every point in time, the position of the thrown ball is determined by kinetic energy minus potential energy, but there's also an overarching principle where the calculated action at each and every point will always be the least possible action. So, in the example of throwing the ball, the calculated action at each point in time along the path of the object will be the least value that it could possibly be, and the result will be a parabolic path. If you throw it hard and high, or low and soft, the principle will still apply, but one will have a higher altitude than the other. So, the initial conditions working on the thrown ball still matter, but the principle of least action will apply from the moment it leaves your hand. As principle of least action proponents like to say, the universe is lazy. It will only ever do as much as it absolutely has to. The understanding that for all possible paths between T1 and T2, there is only one true and possible path, the path of least action, the lazy way, is a significant fundamental concept of mechanics. You can apply the principle to the action of any mechanical system and derive the equations of motion for that system. The equations of motion for a system are whatever equations define the system's motion over time. These can be straightforward functions drawn on x and y axes, where x is distance over y time. So, for a particle moving at a constant velocity in a vacuum, you get a straight line. But if there's dynamic motion involved, then the equations of motion are differential equations. And you can take a step further and swap Euclidean space for curved spacetime and derive relativistic equations. It's probably a step too far to say the principle of least action underlies everything that matters in mechanics theory. This may be particularly useful where formulas that calculate what's happening at a single point in time, like F equals MA, aren't useful. The whole idea of least action dates back to the 1700s and is generally attributed to Maupertuis, but with due mention owed to Hamilton, Lagrange, Euler, and maybe Leibniz too. So it's hardly a new idea. It's more what you'd call an oldie, but a goodie.